Hello, everybody. This is Jen Metteries. And before I get started on the podcast today, I'd just like to say a huge thank you to everybody who has been listening on a regular basis, everybody who has recommended the podcast to their friends. I really appreciate all the support. I'd also like to toss out, as per usual, that if you'd like to help support the podcast financially, you can do so through Patreon or through PayPal, both of which are linked on our Facebook page. Now, this particular episode is the very last of the Kickstarter suggested episodes. This particular episode was suggested by CJ. It was a little bit difficult to research. There's a lot of information and a lot of it is very dry, but it was a really fun story to read about. So thank you so much, CJ. And I hope that everybody really enjoys the episode. So with that in mind, thank you very much for listening and welcome to Disaster Area. Episode 34, Centralia. Man can make nothing that nature can't destroy. Graffiti written on the closed section of Route 61 leading to Centralia. Now, you may have noticed that I didn't start this podcast the same way that I normally do. Usually I begin the podcast by noting the episode number, the name of the disaster, the date the disaster happened, and the number of people who died or were injured in the tragedy. Centralia is a different story. Which date do you use to commemorate what happened in Centralia? The day it was founded? The day the fire began? Or at least when they think it began? The day a little boy nearly fell to his death? Or the day when people began to leave, turning what was simply a disaster into a notorious ghost town? Centralia is a big picture disaster. It didn't start at a certain moment. Nothing blew up at a certain time and date. In fact, the disaster is still going on to this very day. Centralia is a ghost town. Or, it turns out, not that much of a ghost town. So many people imagine Centralia much like Silent Hill, the video which was partially based on the story of the small town perpetually threatened by underground fire. But Centralia is much like any other small town in eastern Pennsylvania, although, as you'll hear, the mine fire was not the first disaster to strike the town. The area was first given the name Bull's Head after the Bull's Head Tavern opened there by Jonathan Faust in 1832. But in a decade, the Locust Mountain Coal and Iron Company would snap up the land, and Alexander Ray and his family moved there. Ray, who was a mining engineer, plotted out a village he called Centerville because it was, quote, the center of everything. In 1865, a post office was established in the town, and in the process, Centerville became Centralia due to the presence of another Centerville in the state. And you can't have two. The next year, the borough of Centralia was officially incorporated. One of the first churches founded in the town of Centralia was St. Ignatius, which would be intrinsically linked to the town due to a legend passed through the years. 
The founding priest of the church, Daniel McDermott, spoke out against the Molly Maguires, who are a group of Irish and those of Irish descent who participated in activism to support those like them working in the coal mining industry, of which eastern Pennsylvania held plenty. Unfortunately, their methods were never exactly nonviolent. They were known for bringing the same destructive tendencies they used to fight landowners in Ireland with them to fight coal mining companies in America. In fact, on October 17, 1868, town founder Alexander Ray was murdered in his buggy by members of the Mollies on a trip between Centralia and nearby Mount Carmel. Three men would eventually be convicted and hanged for the murders, for the murder, excuse me, in Bloomsburg, the county seat, in 1878. Regardless of the threat they presented, McDermott continued to speak out against the Mollies, to the point where he was finally reassigned to a parish in Philadelphia for his own safety. But before he could go, the Mollies, or some of their more enthusiastic supporters, of whom there were many in the community, finally had enough, and he was beaten terribly in 1869. Following the be beating, McDermott is said to have crawled back to St. Ignatius and claimed, I place a curse on those that are responsible for this crime, on their families and on their children. One day this town will be erased from the face of the earth. Only the church will stand. In December of 1908, a fire in the town wiped out an entire block on Locust Avenue. The fire destroyed 42 buildings, leaving 34 families of about 150 people left homeless. In the aftermath, there was only about $4,000 to care for the homeless, when there was nearly $75,000 in damage. Rumors began to circulate that the coal company set the fire on purpose to get access to the vein of coal underneath the damaged area. This is a rumor that would come back later on. The Spanish flu also struck the town fairly hard, with about 10% of the town dying as a result of the flu. But one of the worst moments in the town's history occurred on June 17, 1948, when United Airlines Flight 624, a DC-6 en route from San Diego to New York City, crashed in nearby Aristes, killing all 43 people on board. The plane nearly stru struck Mid-Valley Colliery No. 2, but thankfully missed the mine by 100 yards. Authorities headquartered the rescue efforts in Centralia at the time, but there were clearly no survivors to rescue. Still, the town did find a way to help one man who died. When family members of his in New York did not claim their deceased relative, the town supplied the funeral and buried him in Oddfellows Cemetery. For decades, townspeople would just continue to put flowers on his grave in remembrance. At the time, the crash would be the second worst plane crash in the United States. The investigation would later find that the crew, suspecting a fire in the cargo hold, released CO2 into the hold. Unfortunately, the CO2 leaked into the cockpit and partially incapacitated the crew. And what you definitely don't want on a United flight is your crew incapacitated. Unless, of course, you paid for your plane ticket and they want you out of your seat. Anyway, this wouldn't be the only dark moment in Centralia during the middle of the 20th century. 
On July 11, 1961, 13-year-old Jane Benfield disappeared on her way to run an errand. Her body would be found later that night by searchers on a patch of strip mine waste near the Lily Pond, a popular hangout spot just outside Centralia. She was mostly nude, and her head had been crushed by a rock. Her killer, Frank Earl Sank, would not be discovered until the following January. A serial sexual predator, he'd spend the months since the murder of Jane committing more sexual assaults and rapes, but thankfully no more murders. The day after he killed her, Sink, who was a traveling salesman for Look Magazine, stopped at the home of the Brennan family in Mount Carmel. Did you hear they found that girl's body? He told a shocked Mrs. Brennan. She hadn't, because Jane's body would not be located for several more hours. Then he asked if her young daughter could help him find his next sales call. Mrs. Brennan listened to her intuition and kicked him out of her house. Frank Earl Sink would be convicted and sentenced to death on April 6, 1962, although due to various appeals, he would never make it to an electric chair or gas chamber. Still, like most small towns with hardly any such heinous, cr heinous crimes in its past, Centralia remembered both Jane Benfield and Frank Earl Sink. In 1962, the population of the town was about 1,600 people, with 800 or so buildings spread out across Centralia, all of it sitting over an interlacing network of coal mines. Now is when we talk about coal mining in Pennsylvania, which is huge, or at least it used to be. Throughout Pennsylvania's history, coal mining has played an important role in the state's economy, particularly due to the amount of anthracite coal underneath Pennsylvania's hills. Now, if you're anything like me, you know pretty much nothing about coal. Even growing up in northeastern Pennsylvania, I don't exactly know a lot about coal. But if you need a little bit of a primer, we can go over that. Uh, there are multiple types of coal ranked by metamorphic grade. At the lowest end is peat, which is more of a precursor to coal than actual coal, while graphite is at the highest end, though that's more used for things like pencils than heating. Of the types of coals used for heating, both industrial and residential, from lowest to highest on the metamorphic scale, you have ignite, lignite, excuse me, subbituminous, bituminous, steam coal, and anthracite. The coals at the lower end are more in use for steam and electric power generation. The coals that you probably know better than the others are bituminous and anthracite. Bituminous coal is duller. It looks a little more like igneous rock, comes out of a volcano, that kind of rock. But anthracite coal, however, is what we're concerned with. And it is probably what you think of when you think of coal. It's black, it's glossy, and it's used primarily in heating, especially home heating, because it burns long and hot. When the heating company rolls up in their truck to pour coal down a chute into your house to heat it, if you still use coal, that is more than likely anthracite coal. Anthracite coal is everywhere in Pennsylvania. 96% of the world's anthracite is in northeastern Pennsylvania. 
It's in the mines. It's in the slag piles. People run their four-wheelers over for fun. It's even found here or there on the nature trails, particularly the trails converted from where former train tracks would go through the woods. If I were to walk two blocks away from my house into where the woods are, I would find coal everywhere. In fact, coal is so plentiful in Pennsylvania that it's not uncommon to find trinkets or carvings made out of anthracite coal for sale in local shops or tourist attractions, because that's our thing. Now, mining in Centralia was just as serious a business from the very beginning as it was in a lot of other small towns, with multiple mines opening up in a very small handful of years. The Locust Run Mine, the Coal Ridge, the Hazeldell Colliery, the Centralia Mine, the Continental Mine. Mining meant work, which meant growth. The town's peak population reached 2,761 people excuse me, in 1890. Over the years, it had its own school district with elementary and high schools, along with two parochial schools, seven churches, seven saloons, two theaters, and over a dozen grocery stores. What struck me about that as I read that particular listing was the seven churches. Every small town in eastern Pennsylvania, northeastern Pennsylvania, I'm sure in western Pennsylvania as well, but we all have had at one point in time multiple churches in town. My particular hometown was once in the Guinness Book of World Records for the most churches per square mile. For decades, Centralia thrived on mining, but with the advent of World War One and the crash of the stock market in 1929, mining in the area began to dwindle. Workers were leaving to go fight the war, and mines were shutting down. Some people would still sneak into mines which weren't being used and mine there. Uh, extracting coal from the pillars meant to hold up the ceilings and causing collapses, which would cause problems decades later when they were trying to figure out ways to contain the mine fire. By the time the 1960s rolled around, most of the mining companies in Centralia were shut down. What they left behind was a shrinking, if friendly and inviting, small town, and a lot of danger lurking underneath the ground. The thing about small towns in Pennsylvania, and I say this as somebody who has grown up in a small town in Pennsylvania and still lives in that small town in Pennsylvania, is that even when the economy's bad, even when half of the businesses in town are shut down, even when things are bad, there is still a very strong sense of community. And I am sure am absolutely positive that the way that Centralia felt at that particular moment was like one big family. That's the kind of feeling that you get in small towns in Pennsylvania. Even if you don't agree with everybody, even if you don't have the same sort of political beliefs or religious beliefs, uh, for the most part, there's a very strong sense of community. And when it comes to Centralia, you're going to see that coming up later on in this story. Now, 1962 is a banner year for Centralia. It is the year when everything changed. Uh, 
The town landfill was this long pit and former strip mine that was excavated in 1935 by Edward Whitney. It abutted one corner of the Odd Fellows Cemetery, and the council had made it into a landfill earlier in 1962 to combat the eight unofficial landfills people were using throughout town. Basically, people were finding a hole and throwing the trash in no matter where it was. So they were trying to get it all centralized into one place so they could take care of it a little easier. The pit itself was 300 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 50 feet deep and had been leased for the purposes as a landfill from the Lehigh Valley Coal Company. The regional landfill inspector for the State Department of Mines and Mineral Industries had warned town councilman Joseph Tide had several holes in the walls and floor which would need to be filled with incombustible materials before it could be used as a landfill. Tig must have arranged for the holes to be filled to the inspector's satisfaction because a state permit was soon issued. Now, there are several theories as to how the Centralia mine fire began, although some are more popular than others. And much like with other disasters that I've read about, depending on which book you read, you get a different theory. Sometimes you get a believable theory, sometimes you don't. Um, and one of the interesting things about this particular disaster is that it reminded me of researching the Hartford Circus Fire episode in which there were more than one books and uh, there was more than one book about the fire. And it was pretty clear that behind the scenes of whatever research these people were doing, there was also a lot of uh, writerly catfighting and 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 <laughs> that sort of thing which as a fellow writer I completely understand <laughs> and in this particular case there is a lot of um, there's two particular books that are featured as sources for this and that's where these particular theories come from the first theory and the theory that seems to be the one that has the strongest case behind it is that on May 7th, 1962, the Centralia Borough Council ordered five volunteer firefighters to clean up the town landfill on Memorial Day weekend, which was a not uncommon task for which each of the volunteer firefighters would get paid a grand total of $6. That's $6 each, by the way. The process of, quote, cleaning it up meant setting the landfill on fire, letting it burn for a while, and then putting it out. Setting a dump on fire at all, it should be mentioned, was against Pennsylvania state law at the time. The, quote, cleanup took place on May 27th with a front end loader used to help compact the trash in one particular area for the fire. This time, however, the fire was more than likely not completely extinguished. Another theory states that a local trash hauler dumped hot ash or coal or both onto an open trash site. The hot material then penetrated the ash and reached a coal vein lying underneath it. 
Still another theory threw out that an older mine fire, which had burned a few hundred feet away from the landfill, had set the landfill on fire. In fact, one of the firefighters who had gone to do the cleanup was one of the ones who had initially put that theory out there. However, some of those old, quote, bootleg miners who'd gone into old abandoned mines in recent years to kind of take whatever coal they could find and sell it for money stated they've been in those specific tunnels and if there'd been a fire there the gases would have killed them which is a hard argument to go up against whatever the reason the president of the cemetery's trustees hurried to see john teague on may 29th to inform him that the pit was still on fire in response the firefighters went back they dumped a massive amount of water on the fire they drug they dug a trench to contain it they poured sand and fly ash in the mines as a barrier nothing worked the firemen fighting the fire soon noticed part of the problem or maybe the whole problem a 15-foot-long hole in the wall nearest the cemetery, which had been hidden under all the garbage and never filled with non-combustible materials. That one hole was all the fire would have needed. It had an inn to get into the mines. On July 2nd, the town councilman in, in charge of the fire department matters quit. Clarence Kashner, the president of the Independent Miners, Breakermen, and Truckers, which was a, kind of a group of exactly what it sounds like, had dealt with emergency mine fires in the past, and he offered to dig it out for only $175. The engineer he spoke to at the Department of Mines and Mineral Industries office, Gordon Smith, told him these decisions would take time. Kashner, with his experience with mine fires, got angry and snapped back at Smith that this needed to be done quickly or it would only get worse. Smith apologized. There was just nothing that he could do. One can kind of easily imagine Clarence Kashner placing the receiver back on the phone only to bang his head off the nearest wall in frustration. Meanwhile, people were still dumping their trash into the big, burning, sulfur-stinking pit of smoking garbage. On July 25th, the council composed a letter to the Secretary of Mines and Mineral Industries, Lewis Evans, which stated at one point in the letter, quote, The borough of Centralia has been operating a waste disposal area under permit number 443R, issued by the Department of Mines and Mineral Industries. In spite of all precautions to operate the waste disposal area within the provisions of the applicable law, a fire of unknown origin started on or about June 25, 1962, during a period of unusually hot weather. The letter was meant to persuade the department to fund efforts to extinguish the fire, which is probably why that particular section is clearly full of crap. While all of this trying to get government assistance to fight the fire was going on, not much more was actually being done to, you know, fight the fire. 
it began to spread through the multiple veins threading beneath the town. The temperatures at the center of the fire reached 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit. A person faced with those conditions would be dead in under 20 seconds. What would happen with these fires going through these these veins is that, you know, they're heating up, they're burning this coal, and it's reaching these temperatures. Meanwhile, coal that is further down the mine is getting warmer. Not as warm as it is at the fire, but it's still getting warm. And it's drying out. And with anthracite coal, when you dry it out, it burns more easily. So the fire was basically being fed constantly by what was ahead of it. It was just more fuel, more fuel, and more fuel. Now, normally dousing a fire, if it doesn't work by, you know, throwing some water on it, suffocating it is another option. But in the case of the Centralia mine fire, this wasn't workable. By the time it was even considered to try and cut off the fire's oxygen supply, it had spread through so many of the tunnels, there were far too many access points to the outside air to make cutting off its oxygen viable. The people of Centralia started to learn over the ensuing years that they shouldn't really have a lot of faith in the governor of Pennsylvania or the secretary of the interior who wouldn't probably not bother to do anything until someone died. They had been trying multiple ways, multiple times, multiple people, different groups to get somebody to pay attention to them because of legal precedent. They had to go to government, to the state, the federal, the local. They had to go through all these channels to get the funding and get the help they needed to put out this fire. They couldn't go to any of the companies involved in this fire. Um, They couldn't go to the Lehigh Valley uh, company that had initially leased the property. It was the responsibility of the Department of Mines and Mining Industries and the Secretary of the Interior, the Department of the Interior, all of those different related government groups had to help put this fire out. And as we all know with government groups, these sorts of things can take a while. And Centralia didn't have a while. The majority of state and federal funding for fighting mine fires at the time was going toward a bigger one that was burning under Scranton and Wilkesbury, both of which are considered kind of a bigger metropolitan area together. They're right next to one another. And considering the larger population in that metropolitan region, that meant more attention from politicians and therefore more assistance to fight the mine fire burning there. If you can just imagine them having to evacuate a couple hundred thousand people from this area, they don't want to do that. So they're focusing on Scranton and Wilkesbury and their fire as opposed to Centralia and their little fire. However, 
of course, this puts Centralia at a disadvantage. It's smaller. It has fewer people in it. It and its mine fire are simply less important in the grand scheme of things for the state and federal mining departments in charge of funding the fight against underground fires. Their fire just isn't showy enough. Let's put it that way. It would take three months for the federal government to come up with the funding to stop the fire, which meant the fire would fester and grow. This simply couldn't be allowed to happen. They literally weren't allowed to touch it and try and stop it. Only what the government would tell them to do, what the town council would allow, what the state would allow, what the federal government would allow. They couldn't just show up one night and do the work of putting it out under cover of darkness. They had to get permission. At the August 6th town council meeting, a local strip mine officer, Alonso Sanchez, made basically the same offer Clarence Kashner had made. He would dig out the fire for little to no charge, as long as he could keep any coal he dug out without paying royalties on it to Lehigh Valley. Sanchez, much like Kashner, was shot down and told it would have to go to the state for bids. You can imagine just they're starting to become this list of people who are trying to say, you know, we'll do it for a relatively small amount of money right now. We have the equipment, we have the know-how, we will go out and do it. And this town council is sitting here and saying, our hands are tied. There's too much red tape. When the first federal project was funded to try and contain the fire, the government allotted about $35,000 in total. At first it was about twenty-seven five, and then they added another 7500 I believe it was. Soon enough, the few miners who still worked in the tunnels underneath Centralia were no longer allowed to do so. The carbon monoxide levels in the tunnels were far too high. When people above ground were being forced to keep windows open just in case they needed to vent poisonous gases from their homes, Working in the mines was more dangerous than ever. One step taken to try and fight the fire and its deadly effects was to install boreholes, which were these pipes that were stuck in the ground to vent the accumulating mine fire gases. People in town started kind of getting used to the smell of sulfur everywhere because of these boreholes. These pipes rose a few feet out of the ground and were encircled by fencing. In most of the photos you see of them, the space between the pipe and the fencing is half filled with garbage because what people were doing just for kind of sick, morbid amusement was throwing bottles and cans into the gap for this little bit of entertainment of watching the trash melt from the heat. But there would still be dissent between two factions of people in Centralia. I say two factions, that's probably underestimating it. You had those who thought the fire was a threat to property and life and wanted the state to help them get out. And those who thought the whole thing was simply hogwash and wanted the state to leave them alone. Multiple groups popped up among citizens of Centralia who either wanted to leave or stay, those who thought the fire needed to be put out, and those who thought it would burn itself out, those who thought that the fire's dangers was, was real, and those who thought it was being played up by the state 
in order for Pennsylvania to get their hands on the valuable coal which lie beneath Centralia, which, as you can remember from the 1908 fire, was also a concern of a lot of people. Over the decades following the start of the fire, the fight with local, state, and federal entities to get the funding necessary to do something, anything at all, to deal with the Centralia mine fire dragged on. I'll be honest, I could detail it down to the smallest fact. I could write out every argumentative meeting, every pleading letter sent to whomever was governor at that specific point begging for help, every dismissive comment made by those in positions of power. But quite frankly, we would be here for another hour. It is the driest information you're going to read. And it is a lot of people at a lot of different town council meetings and government meetings and speaking with a lot of politicians getting very angry. And if you're anything like me, you've seen a lot of that in the news lately. And maybe it might be a little too much to hear that on your terrible disaster podcast. So suffice it to say, those who knew exactly what damage the fire was causing and the lives it threatened in the process were stymied at every turn for at least two decades. You had people who really knew what they were talking about. Uh, Sanchez and Kashner, who had said that they would dig it out. You had other people who had seen this fire, who knew it was a danger, who had measured these, uh, the carbon monoxide in homes and in the mines. And they all knew that there was something going on. And... Getting people to listen was very difficult. What they needed, not wanted, but unfortunately needed, was a very visible display of just how much of a threat the Centralia mine fire was. Q. Valentine's Day, 1981. After Todd Dombrowski's grandmother called his mom to tell her, hey, there's this group of strangers coming out of the house across the street from us. Do you know anything about that? Todd Dombrowski's mom didn't know anything about that, but she decided to send 12-year-old Todd over to Grandma's house to check it out. So Todd Dombrowski leaves his house, puts on his kind of red-orange hunting cap and his winter coat, and starts heading to Grandma's house. As he's going along the way, he passes a cousin of his, Eric Wolfgang, who is outside working on his bike. He says hi. And he's getting closer to his grandmother's, and he sees in the backyard that there's some smoke. And, of course, where there's smoke, there's fire, so he goes to check it out. He sees it near an ash tree that is in the yard, and... As he gets closer, he can see that the wispy smoke is rising from the ground itself. And he starts thinking maybe, maybe that's the mine fire. Suddenly, he sank down to his knees. A moment later, to his waist. Todd struggled to push himself up with his arms from that position, but then there was another collapse and he screamed as he fell downward once again. Todd only just kept himself from falling 300 feet 
down the suddenly opened hole in the ground. He clutched at a tree root from the ash tree as toxic smoke billowed past him. He was too far into the hole to be seen himself, but his cousin Eric finally heard his screams, came running over, and between the smoke and Todd's position, had a really hard time seeing him until he finally spotted that red-orange hunting cap that Todd had been wearing through the smoke. At this point, Eric gets flat on his stomach, wriggles over to the, uh, to the hole on his belly, and reaches in to pull Todd out. Through some sort of miracle, I've seen Eric's age at that point listed as 16. I've seen it Eric, uh, listed as 14. Whatever his age, it was very impressive that he managed to save his cousin and pull him out of that hole. Todd's heavy winter clothes were muddy and in his words quote-unquote they were baked on as he described it you couldn't have hosed off his clothes if you tried the heat had cooked them on to him so eric and todd both rushed into the kitchen of their grandmother carrie wolfgang startled by what had just happened to them and how clearly something had happened to todd she had an idea, and she urged Todd to run out and tell the group of men she just saw exiting her neighbor's home exactly what had happened. She didn't know who they were, but she somehow knew this was probably a good idea. It was a good idea. The men in that group were a who's who of politicians politicians who'd chosen that specific day to tour the town and get a clear picture of what the mine fire was doing. The group included Congressman James Nelligan, State Senator Edward Helfrich, State Representatives Ted Steuben and Robert Belfonte, and the Acting Director of the Office of Surface Mining, among other local politicians. A gas inspector had been in the middle of explaining the gas problems in the Andrade home, the one they were visiting at that precise moment, when the congressman noticed the commotion in the yard across the street. At this point, Todd, who is covered in mud and clearly very upset, raced over and told them what happened. Once he did that, State Senator Helfrich immediately demanded somebody get the governor, who I believe at that point was Governor Thornburg, on the phone. Todd Dombrowski was taken to the hospital and given oxygen, but luckily he suffered no damage from the carbon monoxide, which had poured past him as he dangled in the subsidence. Physically, he was fine. Mentally, he was very traumatized by what happened. He had a hard time sleeping. I believe I read somewhere that he, you know, he did have some nightmares and, and was very concerned and worried, as, as you would be in such, a, in, in such a situation. Back in the yard, someone dropped a cinder block down the hole just to hear it hit the bottom. They didn't hear a thing. One of the most well-known men in town was a man named John Coddington. The 62-year-old former mayor had owned two gas stations in town, one of which he sold so he could have one closer to town when the highway moved. This, his second gas station was on South Locust, uh, South Locust Street. Excuse me. However, 
once the fire started in the mines, the heat rose and the temperature of the gas in his tanks rose as well. This led it to expand out the overflow and start to escape. At one point, he lowered down a thermometer into the tank only to discover the gas inside had reached 172 degrees Fahrenheit. Gas ignites at 495 degrees Fahrenheit. He finally closed the station in 1979 once the danger became too great. At a certain point, you have to step back and say, I'm not playing games, particularly with a gas station. The Coddington family still had a small store with an apartment upstairs, and like many families in town, they kept a carbon monoxide monitor in their living room. Now, obviously, at this particular time, this we're talking about the early 80s, this is not the little compact carbon monoxide monitor you you know, you plug in to an electric outlet in your house and that sort of thing. This is something entirely different, a little bigger, a little bulkier. Those who weren't lucky enough to receive a carbon monoxide monitor because there weren't enough to go around, either shared with others or used a little trick they learned from the coal miners. They bought canaries. State gas inspectors would visit the homes of those who kept the monitors to measure just how high the lethal gases had gotten. Some of these gas inspectors were coming every day to check these measurements. Some people who'd just gotten a monitor, brand new monitor, you bring it into your home, you sit it down and you turn it on. And these people were doing that only to find that the readings would immediately shoot off the charts. On February 16th, John Coddington got so frustrated about all of the problems that were going on, everything that had happened. This is only two days after what happened to Todd Dombrowski. He's still waiting for something to happen. So he wrote a letter to the governor demanding to know when someone, anyone at all, would finally help them. On the exact same day, the Centralia Mine Fire Advisory Group in Harrisburg reported that the only way to go at the fire was to excavate the whole damn thing. 140 acres of burning coal. It would cost $87 million. 109 buildings would be demolished in a town of about 500 buildings or so. And Route 61 and a natural gas pipeline would need to be rerouted. Whatever Centralia was... Before, there wouldn't be much of it left if the advisory group's idea went through. Three days prior, when the whole Todd Dombrowski nearly fell into, was backfilled, what I mean, I believe what I mean to say is, three days prior to this, uh, they fill it in. In the Cottingdon home, the levels of carbon monoxide start to rise. And three days after that hole was filled in, the levels of carbon monoxide in his home were 100 parts per million. It was the highest reading the meter, the meter could reach, and it stayed that way for 42 minutes straight. On March 19, 1981, John Cottington was carried out of his home on a stretcher. The carbon monoxide leaking into the home, as it was doing in so many other homes in the area, had finally taken its toll on the old man. 
The gas inspectors found the levels on the Coddington's monitor were not at dangerous levels, although they'd be absolutely terrifying in any normal home. Try to imagine that. You, any level that would look absolutely horrifying in a normal everyday town looked okay in Centralia. That looks fine. It could kill you anywhere else, but you'll be fine here. Coddington had worked in the mines for years, and he suffered from black lung disease. So he, that made him a little more su susceptible to the carbon monoxide rising from the fires and getting into these homes. But he wasn't the only one affected that day. Bob and Kathy Gadinsky had also been struck by carbon monoxide poisoning in their own home and passed out without knowing it. But fortunately, they were they were woken when John Coddington was injured and needed to be taken to the hospital. And the family called the Gadinskys to tell them. And so they got up and left their home, which was probably saved their lives. Meanwhile, in a trailer home behind John's former gas station, Terry Burge was alerted by an alarm in his home that the gas levels were too high. So he got up and opened a window, which is usually what they recommended. At that point, he saw the commotion going over, go, going on over at the Coddington's and the family left, the Burge family left to find out what was going wrong. Later, when one of the gas inspectors went back to the Burge's house with him to check their monitor, he, the gas inspector found that even with the windows open for three hours at that point, oxygen levels in the home were still down a percentage point. As the gas inspector told Terry Burge, if John Coddington's spell hadn't drawn them out of the house, the Burges probably wouldn't have woken up ever again. With life-threatening instances rising in number and Todd Dombrowski's story becoming national news, Centralia soon had the attention it frankly should, could have used 20 years earlier. I don't want to say Todd Dombrowski's fall was lucky, but it got Centralia what it needed. It got them the help that they needed. Little boy falls down a steaming, incredibly hot 300-foot hole and nearly dies, particularly in front of politicians like a congressman. That is what's going to do it. In 1984, Congress finally appropriated $42 million for volunteer acquisition, voluntary acquisition and relocation of the citizens due to the dangers of the mine fire. The, to trench around the fire would have had to encircle 3,700 acres and be 450 feet deep at points. Total excavation of the fire would cost a whopping $650 million. Frankly, relocating everyone was the cheap option. Many families accepted the buyout, but they also didn't move that far away for the most part. A great deal of citizens of Centralia moved to either Mount Carmel or Ashland, both of which were basically next door to Centralia. It was the closest thing to staying in town. In fact, if you look at a map today, Ashland is basically right there. 
As homes were bought and families packed up and left, the buildings they left behind were torn down within due time. Demolition crews would usually wait until one block was empty and then clear those homes. Once it was clear some people refused to leave, the demolition crews would wait until there were multiple homes to tear down, regardless of what street they might be on, and go to work. So at a certain point, you're clearing every house in the block, and then, you know, John and Mary are deciding to stay in number 410, so now you have to clear away every other uh, house around them. This presented a problem sometimes, though. For example, when the family in one half of a duplex made a run for it, but the other family living in the duplex decided to stay. In those instances, the empty half of the home would be torn down and replaced with a new outer wall, although how long it would take to build that new wall could be months. To support the new wall, steel beams would be erected and were soon bricked up for aesthetic purposes, making some of the homes still standing look not only slimmer, but also as though they had five chimneys. There were rumors that would go around that would say that those were actual chimneys meant to vent poison poisonous gases from the ground, much like the boreholes. Those were just rumors. It was, it was basically just to make the houses look a little better. Moving out would not always be pretty. In fact, one incident was infinitely uglier than most others. The relocation had pitted families and friends against one another, tearing apart relationships and destroying marriages. People were getting divorced because of it. Brothers, you know, it's brother against brother, you know, families, you know, one family against another. One family wants to say another family wants to go. One of the families that was having an issue were the Meyernicks. John and Bertha Meyernick were both in their 60s and lived in a home at 420 West Center Street. The two began to argue constantly about whether or not to leave Centralia. They were already just renting their home, even before the landlord sold out to the relocation program, meaning they would need to move out eventually. John moved to Centralia to marry Bertha, but Bertha's family was Centralian going back a ways. She simply refused to leave, no matter what. There was no persu persuading her. Centralia was her home. She wanted to stay. On May 12, 1987, 22 Centralian families received eviction notices from the Columbia County Redevelopment Authority. The Meyernicks were one of those families. All these families would need to do to prevent the eviction in 90 days would be to present specific relocation plans. The Meyernicks and other families were eligible for $4,000 in down payment assistance or a rent subsidy if they would just relocate kind of makes someone like myself want to move to Centralia just to see if they would still give out that down payment assistance and rent subsidy. Instead, they were one of only three of those 22 families who did not come forward to say they'd relocate. Bertha Meyernick tried to move into her family homestead, which was actually next door to where they were living, but it had already been snapped up for $21,500 by another party. 
While she was off looking for a way to stay in Centralia, John Meyernick was telling the Redevelopment Authority they'd be moving out of town so they could get the rent subsidy. Neighbors overheard them fighting all the way up to the afternoon of October 6th, when John Meyernick had apparently finally had enough. He and Bertha had both been drinking and arguing, winding each other up, when finally he lost it. He stabbed her multiple times in the neck and chest. She stumbled around, around the home, bleeding profusely, until she finally collapsed into a living room chair and died. John, meanwhile, got a can of gasoline, drove up to the lily pond where Jane Benfield's body had been left back in the day, poured the gasoline all over himself, and lit a match. Arguably, the Centralia mine fire had finally claimed its first two fatal victims. In 1997, the infamous St. Ignatius Church was finally demolished, years after the rectory and convent on either side of the building had already come down. The associated cemetery is near one of the most visible fire sites, although when I say that you may picture, when I say that, excuse me, you may picture enormous flames standing in as a backdrop for an abandoned cemetery, this really creepy Silent Hill-esque sort of thing. In Centralia, you normally don't see flames. You see smoke, and sometimes a lot of it. Smoke that looks like fog and smells like sulfur and gives you a terrible headache. In one of the sources I used for this episode, one man whose father was buried in the St. Ignatius Cemetery was quoted as saying, My father always wanted to be cremated, but when he, my father died, the Catholic, the Catholic Church wouldn't allow it. Now I guess he'll get his way. Which, I suppose, is one good way to look at it. Over the next year or so, warning signs would be posted all over the area as more and more homes and buildings were taken down. Another victim of the Centralia mine fire was the town of Burnsville. In the mid-80s, it had about 75 people living within its boundaries, a tiny town by any measure. But soon the mine fire crawled underneath Burnsville as well, leaving the people there no choice but to go. All that's left there now is a storage trailer, an unsurprisingly unused garage, and a religious shrine on the hill. In 2002, with fewer than 10 citizens left in town, the post office revoked Centralia's zip code 17927 and passed postal duties for Centralia to nearby Ashland. People actually fought for Centralia to keep that postcode. The people who lived in Centralia were still fighting for that, which they're very stubborn and they love their town. You have to give them that. In 2006, a documentary about Centralia was released entitled The Town That Was. The documentary interviews multiple citizens of Centralia, both past and present, including the adult Todd Dombrowski, but it focuses on John Lukaitis Jr., one of the very few people who still live in Centralia. John Lukaitis is hard to fault. He loves his hometown, he knows its history, and he just wants to keep it going. 
he mows lawns and other public areas and puts up the sort of chintzy Christmas decorations you always see hanging from telephone poles in small towns. He's just a man who wants to stay in his hometown. His grandfather wanted to stay, his father wants to stay, and now he wants to stay. You might not agree with his decision to stay in Centralia, but you understand why he's there. At one point, however, it's kind of hard not to laugh a little when he's interviewed outside and speaks about how much he doesn't believe the hype, that he thinks Centralia is perfectly safe now, all while the hill behind him smokes heavily as far as the eye can see. However, the residents of the town, both former and current, still participate each year in a 4th of July barbecue, which dates all the way back to the Civil War. But they don't hold it in town limits, of course. One of those residents, Lamar Mervine, Mervine, I apologize for uh, mispronouncing his name, probably, served as mayor of Centralia or of those still left in town, until he passed away on New Year's Day 2010 at the age of 93. Much like with the 1908 fire, many Centralians still believe the fire was deliberately set by the state to gain access to the rich veins of coal running underneath the town. Once the fire has been completely put out, Pennsylvania now has all the rights to the coal underneath the town due to the fact that Governor Bob Casey declared eminent domain in Centralia. In the 90s, the borough sued to be compensated should anyone try to mine under the town again. However, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court found that with eminent domain, the state now owns that coal. On the bright side, what little of a bright side it might be, because the citizens there don't own the land anymore, they no longer have to pay property tax. It's a relatively small upside, but hey, you take what you can get. Trespassing on the property has always been a sticky issue, not the very least of which because the land is, of course, now owned by the state of Pennsylvania. The state put up a sign in one of the fields under which the fire burned, which said, Warning, danger, underground mine fire. Walking or driving in this area could result in serious injury or death. Dangerous gases are present. Ground is prone to sudden collapse. Unsurprisingly, people kept stealing that sign. It reads really cool. Of course people are going to steal it. The state would put up a new one, and it would soon be gone. Pennsylvania finally gave up replacing the sign in 2004. Estimates are that the fire will burn for another 250 years, or until the coal runs out, whichever comes first. That is, if you even believe the fire is still burning at all. Of the buildings that are left in the area, there are a few homes, a municipal building, and the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary Church, which is high enough up on the hill not to be impacted by the fire, and still holds services every Sunday. Built in 1911, the Ukrainian Church is the last of the seven churches in Centralia still standing. 
perhaps when Father Daniel McDermott ended his famous curse with only the church will stand, he should have specified which church will still stand. There are still a handful of people left in Centralia, although it depends on which article you read just how many there are. Seven, eight, there's definitely fewer than ten at any rate. In 2013, those still living there settled a lawsuit allowing them the right to stay in their homes in Centralia for as long as they wanted the rest of their lives if they like. Just not their homes and not their land. But they can live there, but they don't own anything. However, with no one else coming in, once they're gone, Centralia will belong completely to the state of Pennsylvania. If you've seen any photos of the Centralia, however, what you've more than likely seen are pictures of the old Route 61, now closed off to traffic by raised dirt mounds. Of course, that doesn't stop people from walking right past them or even driving four wheels around, wheelers around them. The three quarters of a mile long road, riddled with cracks and fissures, is now also covered by graffiti, hence its new name of Graffiti Highway. When people sneak down to the area to visit Centralia, Graffiti Highway is usually the first place they go, or at least they used to go there. There's been discussion of breaking up the road and removing it, but it still wouldn't deter hikers and four-wheelers. This February, the state police finally began to crack down on trespassers in the area, mostly because those few people still living in Centralia were sick of their home being treated like a tourist attraction with no thought for their personal privacy. I freely admit that I was going to take a quick ride down just to look around myself, but once I heard they were citing people for trespassing, I decided I would hit the Anthracite Heritage Museum in Scranton instead. I'm pretty sure that ticket will be cheaper than the other one would have been. Partly, though, a Facebook event planned for February 11th couldn't have helped. About a thousand people expressed interest in attending a Barbie Jeep racing event in which adults would drive around the Route 61 area on child-sized battery-operated vehicles. The event was canceled soon enough, but the state police clearly took it as a reminder. Oh, right, this area is off-limits. The town of Centralia is no longer its own. It's the state's no matter who lives there. Centralia is not the only town in Pennsylvania to suffer from an underground mine fire. In fact, currently about three dozen towns in Pennsylvania are sitting atop burning coal mine fires. I live only 15 minutes from one in Carbondale, which has been burning for 21 years and only recently got funding to help extinguish it. One in the town of Plum in Allegheny County has been burning for nearly as long as the one in Centralia, but Centralia is the only town in the state to be evacuated because of it. In 2014, some of the town's current and former members decided to open a town a time capsule which had been buried in 1966 with the intention of being reopened 50 years later. 
It was earlier than planned, but the opening was more self-defense than impatience. Someone had tried to dig it up and steal it before the residents could get to it first. So they decided we should probably open it before somebody takes it. When the residents opened it, it contained a lot of what you'd expect and one or two things you might not. A Bible, some souvenirs from Centralia, a pair of underwear signed by the men in the town at the time for some unknown reason. But two things they did find in the time capsule had to have drawn a wry smile out of one or two people who thought a little too much into it. Water had leaked into the box, about a foot of it leaving those who opened the trunk-sized box to reach into the relatively plentiful water to remove one of the other items added to the capsule, some good old anthracite coal. That was probably not where they needed water on coal. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. Um, the thing about Centralia that's I find fascinating as a disaster isn't the bureaucracy and it isn't the red tape. And you can tell because I completely glossed over that. And I say this as somebody who is very intrigued with politics and government and particularly American politics and government and history. I am obsessed, I'm obsessed with that sort of thing. Uh, and I will watch the most boring uh, dry video of like c-span and yet i had the hardest time slogging through all of these town council meetings where it's basically you know moms and dads and and experts and engineers and all of these people standing up and saying well we have to do this and we have to uh protect the kids and we have to make sure that the the smoke isn't killing anybody and the mono carbon monoxide levels and, and going off like that and then you have people coming up there who are saying things like well you know, we don't believe it's still on fire. We think it's perfectly safe. We don't think there's anything wrong with this. We want you to just leave us alone. And even with all of that conflict, it's two decades of conflict. And what's really frustrating about it is not only are you watching or reading about this conflict, you're also reading about people up in higher positions, the governor of Pennsylvania, the secretary of the interior, Ronald Reagan, all of these other people who just um, up to a certain point, I don't know if I want to say they didn't care, but they didn't see it as the serious concern that it was. And I do think part of it was that it's a very small town. It's 1,500 people. My hometown is 1,500 people. And so it's very easy for me to identify with the story of Centralia because there are also mine tunnels probably weaving under the surface in my hometown too. It's entirely likely there was mining in the area. And so for all I know, it could happen here. And it's one of those things where I've, I've said before, you know, I'm in an area where 
disasters are usually not something I have to worry about. I don't have to worry about earthquakes. I usually don't have to worry about tornadoes. It's really rare for us to get tornadoes. Hurricanes don't reach this far inland. I'm not going on a ship. I can't afford to, to go on trips and fly on planes. There are so many things that I usually don't have to worry about. Sure, I get three feet of snow every once in a while, but that's not really something that, that um, happens a lot anymore. The fact that we got three feet of snow a couple of weeks ago was some kind of miracle. But the mine fires in Centralia, as strange as they might sound to somebody who isn't from around here and to somebody who doesn't see coal on a daily basis, who doesn't see the big slag piles, who doesn't see, you know, the schlocky coal related uh, uh, trinkets that are in some of these stores that you go into, who doesn't see signs for the Anthracite Heritage Museum in Scranton every time you drive down to go shopping. Uh, you know, you think that Centralia is you know, this strange ghost story. And the thing is that it's not really a ghost story. There's, there's still people there. One of the things that I find amusing about this, at least in a little bit, is that Centralia appeared on an episode of Life Without People, which if you've never seen this, it's really, really interesting, particularly if you're somebody who likes post-apocalyptic stories. It tells about, um, and there's episodes on YouTube and that sort of thing where, um, I can't remember if it was on the History Channel or Discovery Channel, but it shows uh, it, the, what would happen to the world if everybody vanished. Not if everybody, you know, died from the flu, like in uh, the stand and there were bodies all over the place. Not if, uh, there was a nuclear bomb or not if, uh, there was a flood or, you know, not if there were any of those destructive disasters, just if everybody disappeared, all people just went away. You know, it's basically like unspoken. What, what, what if the rapture happened? Um, and of course I don't believe in the rapture, but it's just kind of interesting to see that store that kind of situation put forward and part of what they do is they show you okay this is what would happen to washington dc and the monuments in in washington dc after 10 years after 20 years after 100 years this is what would happen with uh, um, uh, the chicago cubs stadium this is what would happen to um the uh, Las Vegas. This is what would happen to all of these cities if all of a sudden all of these man-made things just stopped because people weren't here. And part of these episodes is that they'll show you places where people aren't there anymore. For example, uh, they've shown Pripyat. Uh, which, if you don't know, is the town near Chernobyl where all the workers for Chernobyl and their families used to live that needed to be evacuated almost immediately after the accident there. And so it, it, there, when you go there, it's very 
creepy and there are dolls lying there that kids just left on the ground uh there's an amusement park that's rusted over it's it's very unsettling and the thing about when they show centralia is that there's still a couple of homes there there's still seven and six seven people there it's not really deserted yet it's not it's not kind of the same thing. It's not that people got up and left and left all of their stuff behind. They didn't leave their stuff behind. They took their stuff and the house that they left behind was torn down. So Centralia really doesn't fit with the life after people aesthetic, I guess you could say, with their, with their the sort of the idea that they set up, the concept that they've set up. Centralia is, I mean, it's not Silent Hill. It's not, obviously there's not monsters there. It's not creepy. It's not, or at least I don't think it's creepy. Um, you know, but you do see the smoke that is coming from the ground sometimes. Uh, I have heard, you know, that if it snows down there, you can watch it melt on the ground where, you know, as it kind of steams off, which kind of makes me wish I would have gone when the three feet of snow had come here. Um, it's only about an hour and a half away from my house. And when I first started going through the Kickstarter uh, episode ideas, that was the episode idea that made me think, road trip! And then at a certain point, I realized I probably can't go on a road trip there, particularly when I mentioned it to a friend at work and he said, oh, you heard they're cracking down on people who are trespassing. And then I thought about it and I figured there had to be a way to get in touch with somebody official. And I don't really know if my podcast counts as official, but in any event, it's there. It's not completely empty at this point. I feel like that's one of those things that would become national news that you would hear it, that you, you would hear about it. It would be on uh, the today show. It would be on CNN. You would see these big things that say, you know, the final, the final person who the final resident of Centralia either left or passed away. Um, John Lucaitis Jr., who was the the man in the uh, the town that was, he's about my age, late thirties. Uh, I I would think early thirties, late, uh, it, give or take. So he's probably a little older than me now. So it's probably going to be a few decades, um, unless something happens. He's supposedly the youngest person who lives there right now, I believe, um, but. I think that's going to be what happens. I think one day you're just going to wake up and turn on the news and they're going to say Centralia is, is finally, it's, it's gone. It's finally gone. There's nothing left of it. Um, it. You know, once somebody leaves, once the last person is gone, they don't need the borough building anymore, the municipal building, which is there. Uh, I'm not sure about whether they would keep the church that's there the uh, Blessed uh, St. Mary's, I believe, uh, for short. But there, there's, there's something really unsettling about looking at pictures of it in terms of the overhead pictures. Because if you look at old pictures of Centralia, it's 
it's a regular small town you know there's there's a bike shop and a and a gas station and a grocery store and and all of these different buildings and kids on bikes and it looks just like every other small town there's buildings all up and down the streets there's homes all of that and then you uh, superimpose that against pictures from the same spot now and there's nothing there the roads are still there but they're starting to grow over and as soon as there are no people there that's it those roads will grow over there's a grid there you can see the grid from the air in fact there is drone video that I found um, one thing I will say about drones is that they do a lot of good for this podcast. I think this is the second or third time I've, I've added a drone video to uh, the links uh, for the uh, sources for the episode. But I, I wanted to add it because the drone flies over Route 61. You get some idea of these cracks in the road, how much graffiti is on the road at this point. Uh, what is these these mounds, these dirt mounds that are stopping people from from driving over? But you you get a sense of just how empty the town is. They fly it. I, I believe they do fly it over the town. Um, I I have to say I, I was more interested in the road. Um, Route sixty one is just it's it's covered in graffiti, and there's something really beautiful about that much graffiti. Even though I'm sure close up, a lot of people think it's horrible and hideous. Uh, people coming there and leaving their mark, and in a way, uh, sort of uh, showing it some respect. There's an entire generation of people who only know about Centralia because of Silent Hill. And, uh, you know, there's people who know about Centralia because of ghost stories. Uh, maybe, um, I don't know if there is a ghost story about Jane Benfield, but I'm sure there probably may be, um, or the Meyer Nicks, uh, these tragic stories that are all tied into Centralia and its past and bad things that have happened there. And the thing is that it, it's to the last the people who are living there now are still as tight and as close as a lot of small towns that are in northeastern Pennsylvania or eastern Pennsylvania now that, you know, you, you know everybody, you know their name, you know everything about them, you've grown up with them, and they're great people. And whether or not you think they should be staying in Centralia, these are people who, they may be stubborn, they may be not. Um, I, th I think I feel a lot different about the people in Centralia than I do about, say, Harry Truman, the guy who stayed on Mount St. Helens, even though it was possible that he might get caught up in an eruption. Because... It's it. There's just this sense of community that is still clinging on, even though the population is just dropping and dropping. And it, with every year, it's just getting smaller and smaller. And uh, until there's not going to be a community anymore in Centralia, uh, and that the only thing will be left is the fire.
Um, I don't know what I'm doing for the next episode. Um, I was thinking of doing one on United Airlines on a crash by them. Uh, but I, I don't know. We'll have to see if I really feel like talking about United Airlines after everything that's gone on in the news lately with them. So, um, you know, I kind of want to be timely and I kind of want to not be, if you know what I mean. Uh, I, I do want to thank everybody who has been uh, still suggesting uh, new ideas for new episodes lately. Um, now that I'm finally done with doing Kickstarter episodes, which I've had so much fun doing, I can finally start picking my own episodes again. And as, like I said, I love doing those episodes, but man, I can't wait to start doing another episode and get to pick what I want to do. <laughs> um I am hoping uh, that I'm going to be able to uh, start getting them out a little quicker now. Uh, we'll see how it goes. Centralia was a bit of a, like I said, I complained. I will say, I, I, I will freely admit, I complained a little bit on my, on my Twitter uh, that it was a bit of a slog to go through all of the sort of the red tape and the bureaucracy that is involved in this. And I think the thing is that going through all of that, it can basically be boiled down to people were looking for help and nobody was giving it to them, which is basically how you can boil down most red tape and bureaucracy. People who need help, nobody is giving it to them. So, um, but I tried to focus on the things that people actually want to hear about when they hear about Centralia, which is the fire itself. Uh, the other sort of, these other sort of tragedies that I hadn't even heard of. I had never even heard there was a murder suicide until I was flipping through, uh, an article and they said, Oh, by the way, there was a murder suicide. Nobody really talks about it. And I felt somebody should at least kind of give respect to these people who, epitomized just how much stress this town was under at the time and and just what it did to families how it tore everybody apart um but in the end i mean you have you have these really great people and they just had something terrible happen to their town and they're not the only ones who have had mine fires in their towns there's there's mine fires all over eastern pennsylvania and it could happen again and that's probably the most terrifying thing for somebody like me who lives here <laughs> and and has to face that but um this is uh this is centralia until next time guys stay safe mm -hmm.